friends, this is Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of On Becoming. Today we're including our discussion about authors and their intentions, as in when you read a book, are you able to think the same thoughts as the author, or are your thoughts somehow like theirs, but not exactly the same? If you don't see the immediate practicality at that point, let me make it a little bit more pointed. If I say something to you, are you able to think, think the same thought that I'm thinking? How close does my thought or your thought have to be to your thought in order to say that we've communicated? Or when you write a postcard or an email or a text, does the person reading it have the same thought as the person who wrote it? At issue is the basic question of how well any of us are able to express ourselves or to make ourselves understood. However, before we can get to that point, I'd like to take a few moments to talk about future offerings. On our first anniversary episode, I mentioned that I will be offering a course on the German philosopher Hans-Gerr Gadamer. Regular listeners will know that Gadamer comes up frequently on the podcast, and that I find his way of looking at the world both really helpful and very relevant to many of the issues that are areas of focus for the podcast. What some of you may not know is that I worked very closely with Gadamer towards the end of his life. I mentioned this briefly in the first and second part of the brief Gadamer series. After studying Gadamer's thought for most of my scholarly career and working directly with Gadamer himself, I think I can say that there are few people alive today that know Gadamer's thought and work as well as I do. I would suggest, though, that taking the Gadamer seminar isn't simply participating in a class. Instead, you would be inscribing yourself into a grand philosophical lineage. I studied under Gadamer, Gadamer studied under Heidegger, who's widely considered to be one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, even playing volleyball with him from time to time, much like Maverick and Goose in the original Top Gun. Heidegger, of course, studied with Husserl, who developed and formalized phenomenology as we know it today. From Husserl, you can trace all the way back to the Forte school, which included such luminaries as Novalis, the Schlegel brothers, and Nietzsche. Taking this class is, in a philosophical sense, like being descended from one of those original passengers that came to America on the Mayflower. Perhaps by now you're interested in further details about the course. The course will run for four weeks, with a tour meeting each week. You'll be provided with a syllabus that includes all of the reading, though you should know that this is going to be a pretty laid-back class. If you want to spend hours getting into the reading before the session, that's great. If you'd rather just come to class to hear about Gadamer, well, that's great too. For the duration of the course, you'll have the opportunity to schedule office hours with me. During these meetings, I'll be happy to discuss Gadamer, other philosophers that you might be interested in, content that's come up on the podcast, or just the opportunity to get to know you a little better. The course will start in October 2023, and enrollment will close on October the 1st. Once enrollment is closed, I'll send out an email to all the participants with a survey that will be used to set exact dates and times. I think we'll be able to find times that work for everyone. The final detail is pricing. The course is $200. However, if you are a Patreon subscriber on or before October the 1st, 2023, there is a discount of $40. Of course, I also realize that such a cost can be prohibitive. If you're interested in the course, but 200 or even 160 is just too much for you to swing, do get in touch. 
I'm confident we can work something out. As I've said before, I'm really looking forward to building a community with this podcast, so I do want to hear from you. Feel free to drop me a short note to let me know that you've been listening, or a lengthy critique, or something in between. I've received many letters, and they have greatly gladdened my heart. At the same time, the kind of world-building that we're trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is meticulously recorded and edited. Not only is our recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is now my full-time job. I don't have the stable income of a university professor at this point. So if you can, consider helping us build this community. If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Here's where we left off on the previous episode. I started the previous episode by saying the following. I believe that there are authors, that they have intentions, that words express intentions, and that readers and or listeners are able to discern those intentions. That's my credo. And making this podcast is strong evidence for that belief. Why else would I be trying to communicate my intentions to you if I didn't believe that was possible? So far, everything we've said regarding the formation of ideal objects relates only to the first step, that is, the formulation of the idea that we wish to communicate. What we have questioned is the extent to which an author ever has a clear and full meaning within her mind, and the extent to which that meaning is tied to something else, like her horizon or context. Note that already at this stage that there's at least the possibility, if not the likelihood, of a lack of full presence. But Husserl thinks that ideal objects go through two other stages of constitution. The second stage, that of memory, short-term memory, is inevitable. I have an insight or experience at that moment, and then that moment is over. Thus each now moment passes into what Husserl calls retention, uh, what we could call just short-term memory. We retain it. According to Husserl, none of these moments are ever lost. That is, Husserl assumes that all insights and experiences are still there, on file, ready to be retrieved at any moment. Oddly enough, Husserl's account of remembering completely forgets forgetting. But the possibility that the entirety of my past is at my disposal is clearly open to question. To what extent can I even, as a thinker, rethink the thought that I thought just a moment ago? Am I thinking the same thought, or am I thinking something that's almost identical, that is, similar but not fully identical? Is there no difference or change at all between the two thoughts? Moreover, is there any way for me to be sure of this identity? Note that we're talking here about the proverbial best-case scenario in which I have an insight or experience, and it remains sharply vivid in my mind. But it shouldn't be difficult to realize that many meaning intentions are less than ideal. For instance, it's not uncommon for students to raise their hands in class, and when called upon, they only have a dim reflection of the question or comment that prompted the raising of the hand. That's normal. It happens all the time. Indeed, those of us who speak before public audiences know what it's like to start a sentence and before it's finished to have lost one's train of thought. Long-term memory is hardly any better. Generally, memories become less vivid over time, except for stories about catching fish, which usually grow in vividness. Of course, 
The only problem with this vividness is that it's actually an accretion, not a reflection of the original moment. But let's just assume here that I'm able to have a reasonably clear insight or idea, and that I can pretain it long enough to put it into words and get it down on paper, the third step. What does putting that insight into writing entail? On Husserl's account, writing is absolutely necessary in, in making an ideal object truly ideal, in other words, repeatable. Speaking gives an ideal object a kind of permanence, but the permanence of writing is considerably greater. Yet there are at least th three complications that writing entails. First, Husserl assumes that putting an insight into writing is merely an act of placing it on deposit. On his view, writing in no way alters that insider idea. But is the act of writing so neutral as that? Maybe I'm experience is just different from those of others, but I find that in the course of writing, my ideas or insights go through a process of being formulated into language, and that formulation is not merely the fixing of the identity of that insight. Second, putting a thought into words may preserve it, but language compromises the purity of my thought. How so, you may ask? Well, it's true to say that I as an author have intentions in both the sense of having a meaning and wishing to communicate it. Once I formulate my meaning, intention into language. Those intentions are only mine to a limited degree. Right now I'm speaking in English. I'm using words that were not invented by me and over which I have very limited control. These words are never truly mine. True, I can take those words and formulate them into my sentence, but my ownership of that words is at best limited. Well, there's no question that I can intend, again in both senses, intending or focusing on an object, and intending in the sense of, that's what I meant to say, regarding a particular meaning. The degree to which I can shape that personal intention into words, which are not owned by me alone, is limited by the universality of language, the very fact that it's co-owned with so many other people. Third, once my insight has become an ideal object by way of writing, it can enter contexts that are substantially different from and perhaps even antithetical to mine. In other words, the meaning of my text may take on a different significance precisely because it is no longer related to me and to my horizon. Thus, Nietzsche can write a book that gets translated in English as the gay science that takes on a whole different meaning given our time. Indeed, something as unthinkable as the sayings of Jesus being used by the Nazis for propaganda purposes becomes possible, and indeed, it became actual. One might conclude from Derrida's complication of Husserl's account that one ought not to worry about authors' intentions, or that they simply cannot be known, or even that there aren't such things. But this doesn't seem to be what Derrida thinks at all. First, Derrida clearly implies that authors, and in particular he himself, has intentions. Derrida translates the word Husserl uses for meaning. In German, it's Bedeutung. In French, he translates it as vouloir dire, wanting to say. One cannot help but think here of Paul's I would not have you ignorant, or I want you to know. Thus, to mean for Derrida is precisely the state of having a desire to say something. Note that Derrida frequently speaks and writes in the first person. He also accuses one of his critics, in this case John Searle, of having, as he puts it, avoided reading me and trying to understand. 
Here, Deridas does not say that Cyril has not read his text. Instead, he specifically says, me. It's hard to avoid the conclusion that Derrida thinks that authors have intentions and that the point of his own text is to communicate those intentions. Second, Derrida insists on the importance of what he terms a doubling commentary, that is, an attempt to repeat as closely as possible what the author means. Such commentaries act as, to quote him, an indispensable guardrail that keeps interpretation from developing in any direction at all and authorizing itself to say almost anything. So texts demand our respect, that's Derrida's term. Reading texts requires a knowledge of the proper techniques of interpretation. Derrida insists on the need to employ all the instruments of traditional criticism. Of course, with these affirmations go two caveats. On the one hand, Derrida reminds us that good commentaries do not contend themselves with merely repeating the text, which at its most literal would be simply copying the text. Instead, they attempt to expand upon the text and place it both in its original and in a contemporary context. The more a commentary expands, the less it doubles. Sometimes we want as literal an interpretation as possible, for instance, in an instruction manual. Sometimes we want something that's more creative and thus advances our understanding. Both of these, and everything in between, have their place. On the other hand, on Derrida's view, even doubling commentaries are never absolutely pure in the sense of being without any interpretive aspect at all, however much the commentator might try. I've made this point before by saying that even if you're merely trying to play Mozart just as he would have liked it, you're still adding in aspects to the music that come from you. What we've seen so far should lead us to conclude that speakers and writers have intentions, but those intentions can be reasonably clear or considerably more vague. Such is precisely the position of Hirsch, who rightly points out that, and now I'm quoting, it is not possible to mean what one does not mean though it is very possible to mean what one is not conscious of meaning. In other words, my meaning intention may not be fully known or understood to me. Interestingly enough, Hirsch thinks that this is not some kind of rare occurrence. He thinks it's the norm. As he puts it, an author almost always means more than he is aware of meaning, since he cannot explicitly pay attention to all the aspects of his meaning. With that statement, I think Derrida and Gadamer would all agree. Indeed, Hirsch quotes Gadamer from Truth and Method as saying something so similar that one might be almost tempted to accuse Hirsch of plagiarism. Thus, Hirsch says, as I've just quoted, an author almost always means more than he is aware of meaning. And Gadamer says, the meaning of the text goes beyond its author, not just sometimes, but always. Those two statements are virtually identical. But, of course, there is a slight yet very important difference between these two passages. Whereas Gadamer speaks of the meaning of the text, Hirsch refers to that of the author. Supposedly, what separates Hirsch from Gadamer, or at least what seems to be the common assumption among evangelicals, is that Gadamer denies either that authors have intentions or that they can be known. Thus, when Hirsch affirms what he considers the sensible belief that a text means what its author meant, such a statement is often wrongly read as against Gadamer's view. I think Hirsch is to be commended for defending the author's intention, though I have reservations with his reason for doing so. 
Hirsch claims that it is, and now I'm quoting, preferable to agree that the meaning of a text is the author's meaning, though he affirms that only on the basis of what he calls purely pragmatical grounds. Is the author and her intention so unimportant to Hirsch that meaning is the standard simply because it happens to be the most convenient? In sharp contrast to Hirsch, I would argue that we ought to be concerned about authors' intentions because we care about people, that is, authors. That is, we respect their thoughts. Merely to be concerned about their intentions because it solves a problem of interpretation is likely to be, in my view, a violation of the second formulation of Kant's categorical imperative that we avoid using people. Interestingly enough, evidently Hirsch himself came to realize these problems, for in his later book, The Aims of Interpretation, he gives us a very different rationale. There he puts this concern for authors' intentions in terms of ethics rather than ontology. In fact, he uses the same Kantian argument, arguing that to treat an author's words merely as grist for one's own mill is ethically analogous to using another man merely for one's own purpose. But in any case, having affirmed the importance of the author's intentions, we have in no way solved anything. First, if we affirm that interpretation is directed towards the author's meaning, we have only designated a target, not necessarily hit it. In fact, as far as I can tell, the potential for diverging interpretations is only slightly diminished by designating the author's intention as our target. One can still argue for even seemingly outlandish meanings by saying, but that's what I think the author really meant. And in the end, it's hard to demonstrate conclusively that such readings are incorrect. Second, in Truth and Method, Gadamer argues against the romantic hermeneutic of interpreters such as Schleiermacher as being questionable. Briefly put, Gadamer reads Schleiermacher as saying that the aim of interpretation is to recreate the original thought an author had when he wrote a text. Gadamer characterizes this ideal as a divinatory process in which one attempts to place oneself within the mind of the author. On this view, by reading a text, one can relive the author's meaning experiences. Both Gadamer and Hirsch criticize this view as impossible. As Hirsch puts it, since we cannot get inside the author's head, it is useless to fret about an intention that cannot be observed, and equally useless to try and reproduce a private meaning experience that cannot be reproduced. Precisely because of this problem, Gadamer shifts the focus from what the author thought to what the author wrote. Instead of trying to reconstruct the mental experiences of the author, we are concerned with the meaning of the text itself. While we may still argue over the meaning of a given text, at least we have something before us to which we can appeal, instead of something as vague as what the author was really thinking. And if the writer's any good, at least some of that meaning should have made its way into the text. Third, earlier we noted that while it's appropriate for Hirsch to draw a distinction between meaning and significance, the line between text and context is not so easy to draw. An example here might help. When Paul says in Romans 9.18 that God has mercy on whomever he desires, that is the text. Of course, this text is clearly related to its context. Verses 17 and 19, chapter 9, the discussion of God's choice throughout the book of Romans, etc. You can't understand the meaning of that one verse without understanding its relation to the rest of the text. But wait! 
Aren't meaning and significance supposed to be separable? Perhaps we can solve this problem by saying that the whole of the book of Romans is itself a text. Well, that's true. Yet immediately a new problem appears. Isn't the meaning of the book of Romans at least partially connected to the rest of the Pauline corpus? For instance, the meaning of Romans chapter 9 seems to be bound up with its relation to the first chapter of Ephesians. This problem only gets more complicated the more one thinks about it. In order to understand Paul's letters, they must be placed within the wider context of the New Testament, and that can only be properly understood when read against the horizon of the Old Testament. If we put this problem in Husserlian terms, we can say that the intentional object must be understood against the backdrop of the horizon. Yet, just how far does this horizon or background go? Clearly, we recognize that Paul's writings must be read with the other New Testament writings as their horizon. But when New Testament scholars attempt to make sense of the book of Romans, they don't actually stop there. They make reference to what's going on at the Church of Rome. They read books by contemporary authors to find out how words were used at the same time. They dig up bits of pottery and other neat stuff to find out what life was like back then. All of that serves as the horizon for interpreting the text. Of course, technically speaking, these aspects merely concern the significance of the text, not its meaning. But how much is the situation, say, of the church at Corinth bound up with the meaning of what Paul says in his letters? Can I really understand what Paul means if I don't know anything about Corinth, except what Paul says? Further, to what extent does the use of terms by contemporaries like Josephus actually help me understanding the meaning of what Paul says, as opposed to merely its mere significance? I remember one of my Greek teachers pointed out that the adjective adioleptos, which Paul uses to modify prosukeste in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, usually translated as pray without ceasing, is used by a contemporary of Paul to describe a dog's barking. So I always think about bark without ceasing whenever I read that verse. Now, did that reference to barking only help me with the significance of that passage? Or did it help me understand the meaning? That meaning and significance seem to be very closely connected practically, even if they can be separated theoretically, is apparent from what Hirsch himself says. As the cultural literacy guru, he quite rightly stresses the importance of cultural literacy as the necessary background for proper understanding. In his book, titled Cultural Literacy, he quotes a text about baseball and goes on to say, to understand this text, we don't have to know that much about the particular topic in advance, but we do require quite a lot of vague knowledge about baseball to give us a sense of the whole meaning. It would seem that what Hirsch calls a lot of vague knowledge about baseball would merely help us with the significance of the text on baseball. But that's not what Hirsch says. Instead, it helps us understand its meaning. As he elsewhere points out, to understand what somebody is saying, we must understand more than the surface meaning of words. We have to understand the context as well. But these questions of meaning and significance become even more complex when we add history to the equation. Paul's letters, not to mention the rest of the New Testament texts, were written over a period of time. To us, that period of time is pretty much all the same. But such would not have been the case for Paul and his contemporaries any more than, say, the transition from leave it to beaver to sex in the city would be all the same to us. Moreover, there have been a couple of changes since then. 
For instance, when Paul was writing, there was no clear doctrine of the Trinity. Orthodox believers contend that it's implicit in Scripture, but it's certainly not explicit. We read the New Testament in light of the Nicene Creed, formulated more than two centuries after Paul was writing. So does the Nicene Creed simply help us with the significance of New Testament texts? Or does it actually clarify their meaning? Similarly, Protestants read Paul's claim that we are justified by faith, that's Romans 5.1, in light of Martin Luther. One can argue that Luther simply brought out the true meaning of that passage. But at least for Protestants, that meaning is very strongly related to Luther's insight. A complication with interpreting Scripture, then, is that it has its own horizon. We have our horizon, and there have been many, many, many horizons in between. As I've mentioned before, Gadamer's way of explaining how these relate is by a notion that he comes up with called the fusion of horizons. When I read an ancient text, my horizon fuses with that of the author. Actually, even the way I've stated it here isn't quite complicated enough. For if truly understanding the meaning of references to the Trinity and justification by faith in the New Testament is related to the background of subsequent church history, then the fusion here involves various horizons. Knowing the author's horizon is undoubtedly important. On this point, I have no question that Gautamer would agree, despite the fact that some read him as implying that the original horizon is unimportant. His aff affirmation that a text must be understood as an answer to a question which stands behind it clearly implies that the text's original horizon must be understood and taken seriously. Understanding calls for as much knowledge of the past as possible. But we cannot affirm the existence or importance of one horizon and not others. When we, as 21st century folks, try to interpret Scripture, we do so on the basis of our own horizon. I take that point to be simply a logical extension of Husserl's notion of horizon. Gadamer points out that, and now I'm quoting, the very idea of a situation means that we are not standing outside of it. We certainly must emphasize the importance of doing careful textual work and of being aware of the historical horizon of the New Testament writers and their contemporaries. But however much we work at understanding that horizon, it can never turn us into what we are not. We cannot read Paul as Paul read Paul, nor we can read the Book of Romans as the ancient Romans, let alone the contemporary Romans sipping their latte and reading Paul on some sun-drenched Roman piazza. On the other hand, neither is it the case that our understanding of Paul is anything even remotely like completely different. In our day, it's fashionable to say things like, when we read Paul, we read it completely differently than those Romans or original Corinthians did. Completely differently? Perhaps a Martian could read a text completely differently, but we simply cannot, even if we wanted to. Thus, we too read as human beings, having rather similar experiences of, say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's from Galatians chapter 5, known as the fruit of the Spirit. There's a kind of universality or ideality to these traits. We may have come up with a few more creative variations on such things as impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, strife, anger, and envy, but our variants are nothing all that foreign to what was experienced by the churches in Rome or Corinth. Let me close by briefly pointing out two implications of what I've considered. 
First, I think Hirsch is almost right when he says, it is far more likely that an author and interpreter can entertain identical meanings than they cannot. I agree that the probability that we understand an author is greater than that we do not. However, Hirsch is likewise right in insisting that the issue here is not one of certainty. I cannot be certain that you are understanding my intentions expressed as I am speaking these words. In communication, as in many things, a high degree of probability is the best you ever get, and most of the time, it's more than enough. Where Hirsch's position seems less convincing, however, and here we come to my second point, is when he says, and now I'm quoting, an author and interpreter can have identical meanings. Perhaps we can. Perhaps the meaning present to my mind at the moment, as I'm speaking these words, can be identical to the one that you are having at this moment as you listen to my words. But Hirsch admits that the author's meaning is only partially accessible to an interpreter. So he himself seems to disallow the possibility of any strict adequation. Further, if our understanding of a given meaning horizon is always against the backdrop of a horizon which is at least partially constituted by our own location in space and time, then it is difficult to say that our understanding has full adequation with the meaning of a speaker or writer. Were meaning and significance fully separable, then meaning and intentions could be identical, though that separability would itself not guarantee identity. Most likely, our understanding is, in some senses, the same as of that of the author, and also, in other senses, different from that of the author. Which is which may not be fully specifiable. Of course, one must not forget that the problem of identity and difference and their interconnection is as old as philosophy itself. The ancient Greeks recognized and had various ways of trying to make sense of how something can be both the same and yet different. Indeed, precisely this problem is behind Derrida's notion of difference, but that's the subject for another podcast. Having said all of this, I still think that Husserl's theory of meaning is fundamentally right, and that it goes a long way toward explaining how meaning is communicated. But the complications which Derrida, Gadamer, and even Hirsch raise must be taken seriously. Those complications should not lead us to conclude that understanding is impossible, but they should lead us to recognize that understanding is itself difficult to understand. I began this episode by saying that I believe there are authors, that they have intentions, that words express intentions, and that readers and or listeners are able to discern those intentions. Such is still my credo. Why words work is ultimately, to quote Gadamer, the mystery of language. But I'm convinced that they in fact do work. That's all for today's episode. I hope you found it interesting and informative. If you found it helpful in any way, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also, of course, just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.